Sidebar is brought to you by Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, Kern County College of Law, Empire College of Law located in Santa Rosa, and the Colleges of Law with campuses in Santa Barbara and Ventura. Welcome to Sidebar, discussions with local, state, and national experts about protecting our most critical individual and civil rights. Co-hosts, Law Dean's Jackie Gardena and Mitch Winnick. The first shield that I talk about is simply the challenge of finding a lawyer, which may seem surprising to listeners because everything that we hear about says that there's too many lawyers, not too few. But when you get out of large cities and you think about the lawyers who are experienced in civil rights litigation and understand, for example, what the intricacies of qualified immunity and the Fourth Amendment are, the numbers of possible lawyers to bring these cases really dwindle. And in many parts of the country, there simply are not lawyers with expertise in bringing these cases or who are willing to bring these cases. That's our guest, Joanna Schwartz, professor of law at UCLA School of Law and author of Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable. Mitch, I don't know about you, but my friends and family often call on me to explain court decisions that seem, well, kind of crazy. Sometimes it's about how police officers can, let's say, strip search someone in public or beat someone or even kill someone and not have any legal or even employment consequences. To be honest, I have a difficult time explaining those outcomes to them. It just is hard, I think, to explain how someone could engage in that kind of misconduct, violate someone's rights, and not have any consequences, either legally or professionally. Jackie, this is a disturbing and challenging issue that, frankly, our country's struggled with for quite some time. You can go back to the early civil rights era and the more recent Black Lives Matter movement, which brought exposure to concerns about the conflict between communities and with the police who are expected to protect them. But as we've learned from our previous sidebar guest, Professor Thaddeus Johnson, who has conducted numerous national studies on police reform, it's a complicated issue. It's confounded by racial, ethnic, social stereotypes, police union, labor law issues, community fear, and in some cases, just pure political exploitation. However, one of the most important aspects of this discussion is the role that the underlying legal standards play or should play in balancing the regulation of police behavior with the protection of police officers. Once again, we have invited a guest who can enlighten us. Joanna Schwartz is professor of law at UCLA School of Law and the faculty director of the David J. Epstein Program in Public Interest Law and Policy. Professor Schwartz is one of the country's leading experts on police misconduct litigation and the author of an absolutely amazing book called Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable. Her recent scholarship includes articles empirically examining the justifications for qualified immunity doctrine, the financial impact of settlements and judgments on federal, state, and local law enforcement officers and agency budgets, and regional variation in civil rights protections across the country. So welcome to Sidebar, Joanna. Thanks so much for having me. Let me start with, again, how much I appreciated your book. It's incredibly powerful, in part because it weaves in personal and painful stories of people affected 
by police misconduct, and in part because it is meticulously researched and you effectively use empirical evidence to challenge the underlying assumptions or reasons why courts are loath to hold police accountable. So it's really well done. And just to start with a basic, like what was your goal in writing Shielded? What did you hope to accomplish? By putting this information in a book, my goal was to reach a broader audience with this information. And particularly in this moment, particularly after the murder of George Floyd, when people were raising signs saying end qualified immunity and Congress and and state and local legislatures and governments were trying to figure out how to make these systems work better. I wanted to be able to communicate to that much wider audience what the many barriers are to relief in these cases. Qualified immunity is an important barrier to discuss and understand, but part of my goal is to make clear that it's just the tip of the iceberg, uh, one of many, many shields that make it difficult to get justice in these cases to tell the stories of people who have not been reported on in the news, who haven't had protests in their name or legislation in their name, but who have nevertheless suffered really horrifying injustices and deserve relief. And also to share the research that I have done about the justifications for these different barriers to relief and to make clear that the sort of horror stories that are told by union officials and pundits and politicians about the the dangers of, of making it too easy to sue really bear no basis in reality. Yeah. Well, I have to say you accomplished all of those goals (laughs) and, and (laughs) just to focus on that first piece, when we talk about the lack of accountability for police Um, The one thing we hear about a lot is that idea of qualified immunity, that police officers can use qualified immunity as a defense to avoid liability if they can show that their conduct did not violate clearly established law. And on its face, it sounds fair. Police shouldn't be held liable for behavior that doesn't clearly violate the Constitution. But you explain how the courts have essentially made it impossible for victims of misconduct to pierce this defense. And you provide some really powerful examples. Jenna, because the stories you tell are so powerful, can you choose just one story that you think best exemplifies the pitfalls of how the courts have shaped qualified immunity? Sure. Uh, And it is hard to pick just one. But the story that I think sticks with me the most is that of a man named Henri Norris, who I begin the introduction with. He was living in a small home in the outskirts of Atlanta. He'd lived there for decades. He'd raised his children there. He worked at a nearby rock quarry for his whole professional life. At the time of the story, he was retired, living alone, 78 years old. Um, And he was watching the news one afternoon in his home when he heard what he described as sounding like a bomb had gone off in his house. What had happened was a SWAT team had entered his house, broken down all three doors of his house and were coming in with guns. They were supposed to be searching the house next door that was about 40 yards away. That house looked nothing like Henri Norris's house. That house was white with broken down cars outside. Mr. Norris's house was yellow with a tidy lawn. There was a mailbox that made very clear that what the number of the house was and that they were entering the wrong house. But they did so anyway. 
pointing their guns at Mr. Norris, making him get on the ground. He was twice as old as the subject of the search. That didn't seem to matter. He told them he had knee trouble and heart trouble. That didn't seem to matter. And after they got him onto the ground, held him on the ground, they eventually led him outside and realized that they had searched the wrong house and had the wrong man, at which point they promptly all turned off their video cameras. These officers, Mr. Norris filed civilian complaints against them. Nothing happened. There was no chance that these officers were going to be criminally charged. The head of the search apparently helped refasten his doors to his walls, but that was not enough justice for him. So he did bring a lawsuit challenging the entry into his home and his arrest. The court who that heard the case granted these officers qualified immunity, and it is clearly established that it is unconstitutional to enter a home without a warrant and entering the wrong home without a warrant and then continuing to hold a person knowing there was a question about whether this was the right home is unconstitutional. And there had even been a prior court case holding almost identical facts to be unconstitutional, which is sort of the rare moment in which qualified immunity shouldn't apply. But in this case, it still did apply because in the 11th Circuit, where this case went through the courts, unpublished decisions cannot clearly establish the law. And the prior case that had held similar conduct unconstitutional was unpublished. For that reason, even though it was clear that what the officer had done was unconstitutional, and even there was another case that had said so, Mr. Norris's case was dismissed on qualified immunity grounds. As you've outlined that, I'm, I'm sitting here and looking at a quote from Graham v. Connor, which is the Supreme Court case that frequently is looked at as the standard for what is what is reasonableness. And excuse me for a moment while I give our audience the quote from Chief Justice Rehnquist, because I think it it's what really helps send the standard of why this is so difficult to address. So Chief Justice Rehnquist said, the calculus of reasonableness must embody allowance for the fact that police officers are often forced to make split-second judgments in circumstances that are tense, uncertain, and rapidly involving about the amount of force that is necessary in a particular situation. Well, even the story you told seems to violate that. But is it this underlying belief that police just have to make decisions so quickly that allows this continuation of this qualified immunity defense? There's a lot in that question. I do think that the notion that officers have to make split second decisions in a moment is is often used as justification for why we need the protections of qualified immunity, why we need to create this buffer. What I would say based on that quote, is that the Fourth Amendment, as interpreted by the Supreme Court in Graham versus Connor and in other cases, already create that very buffer in their interpretation of the Fourth Amendment. So qualified immunity comes into play and does its work after there's a finding of a constitutional violation. The first question is, was a constitutional right violated? And if the answer is yes, the second question is, was that right clearly established such that if not, qualified immunity is appropriate? The Graham versus Connor standard that you're talking about, which emphasizes the importance and recognition that there are split second decisions 
that people can make mistakes and that those mistakes are not constitutional violations unless they're unreasonable is not a protection that we need qualified immunity for because the Fourth Amendment already does that. That's a great answer. <laughs> That's a great explanation. It's not really a great answer. That's a great explanation because I think that is part of the confusion that we all have when we're trying to figure out what is the sequence of decision-making that protects the public. It, it absolutely is. And I think that people all the time confuse or merge the standard for the Fourth Amendment with the standard for qualified immunity. And understanding what the Fourth Amendment's protections already provide, I think, takes a lot of wind out of the sails of arguments that we need qualified immunity. We are going to take a brief break to hear from our sponsors. When we return, Joanna Schwartz, author of Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable, will discuss additional barriers to holding police accountable for misconduct. San Luis Obispo College of Law offers on-site and hybrid online evening classes that provide you the option to continue working while attending law school. To learn more about their accredited degree programs or to apply for their next term, go to slowlaw.org. That's S-L-O-Law.org. Your community, your law school, your future. Welcome to the future of legal intelligence. Trellis, a state trial court research and analytics solution. Trellis offers state trial court records for legal research with analysis on judges, opposing counsel, verdicts, motions, dockets, and legal issues. Visit our website, trellis.law. We spent time on qualified immunity, but I don't want to ignore the overlapping protections for police that have been put into place and that have made it nearly impossible for people whose rights have been violated to seek justice in the courts. Can you describe some of the other protections that shield police from accountability? They really pop up at every aspect of the litigation process. Each chapter of my book talks about another one. The first shield that I talk about is simply the challenge of finding a lawyer, which may seem surprising to listeners because everything that we hear about says that there's too many lawyers, not too few. But when you get out of large cities and you think about the lawyers who are experienced in civil rights litigation and understand, for example, what the intricacies of qualified immunity and the Fourth Amendment are, the numbers of possible lawyers to bring these cases really dwindle. And in many parts of the country, there simply are not lawyers with expertise in bringing these cases or who are willing to bring these cases. I then talk about the challenges of pleading a complaint and the Supreme Court's rules about complaints and how much detail needs to be in complaints applies to all cases. The court has said that you need to have facts basically before you get to discovery where you can get information from the other side. You have to know enough detail about your case to essentially have a plausible claim. This can be very difficult in some police cases particularly cases where someone has lost their life and family members don't know exactly how. And I tell the story of a woman named Vicki Timpa who lost her son, whose son was killed in Dallas police custody. Police department wouldn't turn over the body camera video and other evidence that it had. And then when she sued the Dallas police department and named only John Doe officers because she didn't know the identity of the officers, the Dallas police department moved to dismiss the case because 
she didn't have enough detail in her complaint, even though the Dallas Police Department had all of the information about what had happened to her son in their own records. Then, of course, there's a challenge of proving a constitutional violation, which we talked about. And only then, after you've gotten through all those hurdles, does qualified immunity come into play. There are challenges holding local governments responsible. There's a whole set of different rules that come into play when you want to sue a city or a county for the conduct of their officers. And those standards are as difficult, if not more difficult, to get past than qualified immunity because you have to show a prior custom or a pattern or a policy that led to this violation. And that can be very difficult to do. And so getting past all those barriers just gets you to a judge or a jury to decide your case. Uh, as I talk about in the book, there's all sorts of limits on who can serve as a jury that tend to weed out people who might be sympathetic to plaintiffs in these cases. And even when you get a successful settlement or judgment, as I describe in the later chapters of the book, the way that lawsuit payments are budgeted for and paid mean that both officers and the local governments do not feel the financial pinch from these cases. And in many local governments, there is not an effort made to gather and analyze information from these lawsuits with an eye to prevent them something similar from happening in the future. So there's not even the information available to the officers or to the supervisors who might craft some sort of intervention to prevent something similar from happening again. So that brings the issue of one of the goals of this is not just to recompense those who've been individually damaged, but to increase public protection, prove behavior of the police, or remove police that are doing a poor job. Decertification of police officers is the state's process for removing an officer's license to serve as a police officer there or somewhere else. But historically, statistics indicate that very few officers charged with excessive use of force ever lose their certifications. In fact, if you look recently, it's reported that of the 54 officers involved in the 14 high-profile killings that spurred Black Lives Matter, only 10 had their certification or license revoked as a matter of disciplinary action. Is this another area where the legal standards within administrative policies need to change and be reconsidered to increase accountability? I absolutely think they do. There's a there's another book to write. I don't know that I'm the right person to write it, but uh, another book to write about the administrative failures. In the introduction, I say there's sort of three paths to some kind of accountability and justice. Criminal prosecutions, which are vanishingly rare of officers, internal discipline, termination, uh, and I would stick um, decertification in that bucket, generally speaking, as well. That is often rarely successful, which I think you can attribute to powerful union resistance to accountability um, and transparency and advocacy against more robust decertification rules, advocacy in favor of arbitration and other kinds of appeals if there is disciplinary action taken. And I think that there has been important work done to try to press back on some of those law enforcement officer bills of rights, efforts to have more robust decertification rules. All of that is a real uphill battle, particularly given union strength. And in some ways, this is why I 
focus so much in my book and on in my research on litigation because it is very flawed system as well and I think needs to be improved. But the benefit to me of litigation is that it is driven, these cases are driven by the people whose rights have been violated. They don't have to convince police department investigator to open a case or a prosecutor and they can gather the information and disclose the information and get the relief that they can get in the courts. Um, and so it's a flawed system as well, but better to my view than the, than the current alternatives. And I, in some ways, see an easier path to reform than I do of, say, union agreements across the country. One of the things I really appreciated about the book was you looked at assumptions that the courts were making about the potential slippery slope that allowing these cases to go forward would result in. And one of the assumptions was that police officers or the local governments would be bankrupt for what were essentially good faith mistakes. And so we wanted to make it more difficult to sue in order to protect the police officers and the governments. But your research actually proves that these fears are not grounded in fact. Could you just share some of that data? I was really interested in understanding who paid for settlements and judgments in these cases. And I have to say, I really was was interested because it was an issue that came up in my own experience as a civil rights litigator. I didn't really set out to try to start dismantling piece by piece the policy justifications for qualified immunity. But what I did with an interest in understanding who pays in these cases was submit public records requests to I think a total of 150 law enforcement agencies across the country. I ended up getting information back from 81 of them. I ultimately found, based on those large, medium, and small jurisdictions, that officers virtually never pay anything entered against them. It was a six-year study, 81 jurisdictions, more than $730 million awarded to plaintiffs across these various jurisdictions. And 0.02% of those dollars were paid by officers. 99.98% were paid by local governments or insurers. And I could only confirm two jurisdictions out of the 81 that, that ever had in that period had required a contribution. Contribution amounts averaged around $4,000, which is not the makings of a bankruptcy petition. And important to note that this financial protection has nothing to do with qualified immunity. It's due to what are called indemnification laws and policies, rules essentially requiring that when an officer is sued, they'll be provided with a lawyer and a settlement or judgment will be paid by the jurisdiction unless they engage in some sort of outlandish or malicious behavior. Although, side note, I also found that officers were not required to contribute in cases where they were disciplined, fired, criminally prosecuted, and never were required in my study period to satisfy a punitive damages verdict against them. So, Joanna, the other side of that is that the argument is that the positive side would be success of these settlements or claims, regardless of who pays for it, would drive change in behavior on behalf of the police departments, uh, improve standards, improve training, improve discipline. Does your research indicate that even the success of those cases that were pursued changed behavior? Well, I think that high profile cases absolutely do change behavior. If you think about 
what kinds of policy changes have been implemented since the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor? You can see across the country dramatic changes that have been the result of a desire to respond to those events. But part of my critique is that local law enforcement agencies, including the chiefs who took action following George Floyd and Breonna Taylor's deaths, don't look so closely at the lawsuits brought against their own officers and their own departments. But uh, I think all too often, settlements and judgments in police misconduct cases are treated as the cost of doing business, and there's not an effort to learn from them. After hearing from our sponsors, we will discuss what steps communities can take to reduce harms and improve public safety with our guest, Joanna Schwartz. The Master of Arts in Law degree from the Colleges of Law was designed to empower working professionals to become innovative problem solvers in careers that intersect with the law. The legal field is more than what happens in a courtroom after all. The Colleges of Law. Learn more at collegesoflaw.edu. Jackie and I would like to take a quick minute to recommend a great podcast. An Honorable Profession Profiles the Rising Stars in American Politics. From mayors to attorney generals, an honorable profession gives listeners a view from the front lines of our democracy. Check out An Honorable Profession wherever podcasts are found. Kaplan helps thousands of law students become lawyers every year. Prepare to pass your bar exam with personalized prep that fits how you learn best. Choose from a traditional two-month course, a flexible three-month course, or semester-long prep. And get your personalized study plan, which includes thousands of realistic questions and unlimited essay grading. No one does bar review like Kaplan. Find the bar review that fits you best so you can score your best. Visit captest.com bar. That's K-A-P-Test.com bar. So, Joanna, you've you've convinced us how difficult it's going to be within the narrower focus of case law and even the disciplinary process. If I could step back a little a little bit from this, which goes beyond the scope of your book, but I know it's within your area of research and concern. We know that the lack of mental health services is one of the biggest concerns in our communities, and we leave it to the police to be the public health officers on the street dealing with homeless and mentally challenged individuals. Our previous professor, Thaddeus Johnson, said, look, we can't just lay it at the hands of the police. It's only the combination of enhanced police training with community support by the district attorney, public defenders, social service organizations, and the political leaders, the mayors, the the county leaders, combined with legislative efforts to restrict and enforce proliferation of illegal handguns, that it's only this combined community effort that really helps protect police officers and the public. The focus that you're giving us is clearly important in its one piece. Is that enough? Definitely not. I have intentionally narrowed my question and narrowed my answer. And the question that I'm asking in this book is, no matter what you think about police and the challenges of their work, we can all agree that officers sometimes cross the line. I posit that there should be meaningful accountability in those cases and that we don't have it. I am looking at just a narrow slice of the puzzle. Of course, I think I and hope that those cases, if they were handled correctly and allowed correctly in the courts, could help prevent 
harms in the future, but it's only one small piece of the puzzle. I think that if you want to prevent these harms from happening in the first place, there are other changes to make at the front end. A friend and law professor at Emory, Fred Smith, said, it would be a great thing for me if I got shot to be able to have, you know, a better system to bring one of these cases along the lines that that Shielded suggests. But I'd prefer a world in which I wasn't shot in the first place. And I think that that's something we can all agree would be preferable. I'd like to circle back to where Jackie started this, which is your research. And the research requires data. Would I be right in assuming that one of the things we need to do is spend more emphasis and effort to get better data on all of these statistics that would help us know what the trends are and know where to focus our efforts? Without a doubt. We need more data about everything relating to the criminal justice system. And the work that I have done has been through public records requests and through hand review of thousands of case dockets and files. But we don't have a tenth, a hundredth of the information that we could use. And just as one example that that I think illustrates this point very well, we don't have government collected data about how often police killed people. The best data we have is from the Washington Post and the Guardian that started crowdsourcing this information about a decade ago. And the federal government tried to collect this information and then and then ended up giving up. And that's about fatal force. That's among the kinds of data you could collect. That's sort of the easiest because you have clear evidence of a person who has died. There's far harder questions to ask about non-fatal force, about other kinds of misconduct. We have only the most basic information, and that's trying to understand the problem. To actually figure out the solutions, there's still more data that need to be analyzed and gathered. We're going to wrap up now, and one of the things we like to do in wrap up is to actually give our listeners and ourselves something that we can do to be a part of the solution to these kinds of issues. So if you were to talk to someone about what steps they could take to help address this, what would it be? I have one chapter in the book after 12 chapters of setting out all the problems. I have one measly chapter that is called A Better Way that offers sort of a menu of of possible suggestions. Really, I think that the answer is to think locally, to think of what can be done in your own local government. Police are a very local enterprise. There's 18,000 law enforcement agencies across the country. And there's actually a lot that can be done through advocacy to your city council about policies, about getting mental health services involved in responses, about thinking about limiting police involvement in certain kinds of calls, advocating for better collection of lawsuit data, perhaps as a condition of all of this indemnification that is offered to police officers. If we as a society and community are paying settlements and judgments in these cases, shouldn't we know a little bit more about what we're paying for? I think that there's a lot that can be done at the local level. At the state level, there's legislation that's percolating around the country for various kinds of police reform bills. And I have a whole lot more faith in the state legislatures right now than I do in Congress to actually get some things done. And Colorado and New Mexico are both states where they have passed pretty meaningful police reform legislation. And so I would encourage that. The very last thing I would say, and this is the hyper-local, is when called, serve on a jury. 
and don't manufacture a, a dentist appointment or a prepaid vacation that will prevent you from serving. Because I, there are so many ways in which people who could be sympathetic to plaintiffs in these cases are kicked off of juries or not allowed to serve. And so I think having a true representative community sitting in those juries, all kinds of juries, not just civil rights juries, is an important part of the process. I love that last one, Joanna. Thank you. And thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my great pleasure. Thanks for having me. Joanna, great book, great topic, and thanks for being here. Thank you. Jackie, this was another challenging topic for us. I think one of the things that made this topic so difficult is there are such strong belief in competing truths here. Certainly, all of us believe that we should be protecting police officers. They have a dangerous job. They protect us. They protect the community. And any way you look at the statistics, the vast majority of police officers are honorable, do a good job, and, and we hear stories. They go through decades of career without ever pulling their gun, without ever discharging their weapon. Those are the stories that never get told. On the other hand, they deal with statistics that tell us that 80% of police encounters resulting in death of a gunshot wound, the civilian was armed with a weapon. Yet we look at 20% they weren't, and yet there was a death involved. So these are really hard statistics to decipher but at the end of the day, I 100% agree with Joanna. Policies and procedures in the courts and in the administrative procedures and the disciplinary procedures are clearly inadequate to deal with this issue. And it's a very fair statement to say we should be doing better to discipline the bad actors. I agree, Mitch. And I think one of the things that really struck me about Joanna's book was the data she did collect and what the data showed. We think that when you bring a lawsuit against a business or an individual and it results in a large settlement or even a verdict in the plaintiff's favor, that will result in the person changing their behavior. The business will correct a flaw in their product or the person will now drive more slowly or whatever the case may be. I think what Joanna shows in her book and with her data is that the barriers to holding the bad actors accountable also aren't incentivizing cities and departments to actually train and correct behavior that is happening on their force. She, she had a really interesting research where one of the things she talked about in her answers was the idea that they're not looking at the policy implications of the lawsuits. But one police department did, and they found out that when they looked at the suits that were brought, they were night shift suits, and they were all head injury suits. And that allowed them to address what was happening on the night shift and what was resulting in head injuries. Once they found that information out and corrected it, those lawsuits dropped off dramatically. And that's what we're not seeing, that the barriers to these lawsuits don't help in terms of correcting the broader systemic issues at play. There's no doubt that funding takes a role in this. That comes back to all of us. You, you always ask the question, what can we do? 
we should be supporting, not defunding the police, but refunding programs that improve training, that involve mental health workers, that engage the community. Those are things we can choose to do at the local level. Support with our mayors and city councils and county boards of supervisors and say, these are our lives on the line. And when I say our lives, it's the police lives as well as civilian lives, and that more resources need to be brought to bear if we want to succeed in improving this. Mitch, I think you're right. I think what we learned from Thaddeus Johnson and some of our other guests is that there's lots of really helpful ways for us to de-escalate the violence that we're seeing on the streets and against police as well as police against citizens and that we need to really advocate for those at the local level. And the part of that advocacy are these types of communications. These are difficult issues. They are fraught with political as well as social implications. But if we don't talk about them, if we don't have the statistics, if it's not part of our community dialogue, there's no chance of making this better. Once again, I want to thank everyone who joined us today on Sidebar. And as always, Mitch and I would love to know what's on your mind. You can reach us at sidebarmedia.org. Sidebar would not be possible without our producer, David Eakin, who also composes and performs all of the Sidebar music. Thank you also to GoGo Zoger, who manages Sidebar's marketing and social media. Colleges of Law and Monterey College of Law are part of a larger organization called California Accredited Law Schools. All of our schools are dedicated to providing access and opportunity to a legal education to marginalized communities. For more information about the California Accredited Law Schools, go to calawschools.org. That's calawschools.org.